This episode of Geekville Radio is dedicated to the memory of William Hurt. Geekville Radio. Hello there. Hello once again, all you geeks and geekettes. This is Seth, a.k.a. Xandrax, the mayor of Geekville and the host of Geekville Radio, coming at you with another news-filled episode. We, we are going to talk Deadpool 3. We're going to talk Marvel having a Halloween special this year. We're going to talk Doctor Strange 2, and we'll wrap it up talking the Obi-Wan Kenobi trailer and our thoughts on the Batman. But before that, we are going to talk, because we just heard about this shortly before going on the air, the passing of the legendary actor William Hurt. We'll talk a little bit about his career, maybe some suggestions on what to watch. And joining me once again from a nice soft padded cell in South Kakalaki, my usual co-host, Crazy Train, Jonathan Bullock. All aboard, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, I mean, this has dropped, what, a few hours ago? Probably the yeah. last 8, 10, 12 hours? I think really modern fans, modern geek fans, you might say, they probably will know him best for being... General Thunderbolt Ross, later Secretary of State Ross, and the Marvel movies. And he made his debut in not the 2003 Hulk, but the Incredible Hulk, which is also considered part of the MCU, where he played General Ross in that. And then I think I want to say he returned and was at uh, Captain America Winter Soldier, where he was Secretary of State, I want to say. But outside of his MCU stuff, he had uh, a laundry list of stuff. Yeah, I think he actually did TV for a while in the 70s and early 80s. And then I think his breakthrough role on the big screen was Altered States. And then it was pretty much just uh, leading man movie roles from there. Does that sound right? Yeah, Altered States, which is where I first you know, got to know him because that is a um, 80s sci-fi horror thriller movie. It was one of those that, you know, like you said, it was his silver screen debut. He'd done a little bit of television before that. That's where I first got to know him because that is a in the mid 80s i ran it for blockbuster or a mom and pop place it's definitely um messes with your mind yes and so it, it's it's one of those and then i just knew him from that point on mm-hmm. because i i had heard of him through other movies like body heat which is kind of a a sex thriller um yeah it, it's kind of the precursor to a lot of the how would you say thriller types that eventually became like a basic instinct and stuff like that yeah like the yeah, I laid the mm-hmm. groundwork for that. Yeah, I remember yeah. my parents going and seeing it on a date. Mm-hmm. You know, one night. Okay. On their on their <laughs> monthly date night. You know, and, and then coming back and talking about it was good. Yeah. Of course, oh, yeah. I was like eleven at the time, so I didn't understand what the, what the. <laughs> Although something to keep geek related here is, I believe George Lucas was actually an uncredited producer for it. It's like his production company that helped with that, but he didn't want credit for it because it was an R rated thriller mm-hmm. and he was in the middle of star wars and all that so he probably didn't want that on his resume right. most of our listeners know i'm, I'm a, an unabashed parrothead fan of jimmy buffett and his 1985 album last mango in paris features a one of one of the parrothead's favorite songs called frankie and lola and there's a line in there where he even quotes where frankie and lola are this older couple that are the subject of the song and he talks about the line is they go to see body heat lola she liked body heat she said the junior mints were mushy, but the sex was sweet. So <laughs> that was my first exposure to body heat outside my parents going was, was through a Jimmy <laughs> Buffett song. I actually yep. did see it much later when I was older and could understand it. I think the first time I remember seeing uh, William Hurt or after 
altered stage, which I said I saw many years after it came out, was probably Gorky Park. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that was, my mom was a big fan of those espionage thriller type. She's a big fan of like yeah. Tom, of like Clancy, Tom Clancy. So I remember her renting it one night and watching it with her. And it is it is a good like twist ending mystery. I, I'm assuming you've seen Gorky Park. Yes, you? and it's also very violent. It it it, it is mm-hmm. uh, not necessarily what's shown, but what's kind of implied. Well, there is a pretty mm-hmm. gross scene depending on your tastes, where you're seeing like brain being uh, worked on or something like that, and the actor yeah. actually the the British actor who is saying all this weird, gross, twisted stuff, and he's British, so he's just doing it like so flippantly. That's actually Ian McDiarmid, the Emperor. <laughs> and this well, movie came know, out the same year as Return of the Jedi did. <laughs> yeah, and Gorky Park is one of those movies, much like Red Dawn, and we talk about this all the time. It is a movie that couldn't be made today, very much had to be made during the Cold War, don't yeah. you agree? Yeah, there's no way they could do it today. Absolutely right. Not. Um, Around the same time that Mom rented that, Dad rented The Big Chill, and we saw that as well. And I think The Big Chill is one of those movies for for a certain generation of people because of the subject matter is a big deal. It's an ensemble movie about friends that were basically baby boomers dealing about the death of the first friend of theirs in their group who was like, they were all like, what, 40 at the time, probably late 30s, early 40s. Mm-hmm. And so for people our parents' age, this movie was really like a touchstone movie for their generation for that very reason. I still don't think I've ever seen it, which is shocking considering it starred William Hurt and 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 Raul Julia, but he didn't he receive an Oscar for Kiss of the Spider Woman, which was around the same time there in the mid eighties. I believe so. Yeah, eighty five. I think his career kind of took off after that. He, he did a lot of stuff. He did comedy, drama, in the nineties. He did sci fi with the Lost in Space remake, and then which was just dark- absolutely bombed. <laughs> right. Know? But was that the one that had Matt LeBlanc in it from Friends? Yes. Uh, I, I I remember to stay on the, the geek idea. He was in a movie called Dark City, which yes. was on my list of movies this last October and lesser known horror movies. We talked about it in that episode. And if you followed that on the Examining the Dead Facebook page, Dark City was kind of a precursor to The Matrix in many yep. ways. Didn't you agree at the time? Yeah. yeah, you could say that it's one of those movies that just kind of keeps getting more and more twisted. And then it turns out that, mm-hmm. well, big spoiler alert for a you know 24-year-old sci-fi movie. It's not a city. It, it's actually like this some plane of existence out off in space and yeah. everything's just manufactured. I, I think in the gap between Blade Runner and Matrix, Dark City falls perfectly. Yeah, it's yeah kinda, it makes sense. You know, it's kind of leading to that, to stay in the geek world. He he did do a lot of, of, of geek stuff, I think. Obviously, like you said there, at the end of his career, he's going to be mostly known as Thunderbolt Ross, General Ross. And that includes that role in the Edward Norton Hulk, which mm-hmm. is people tend to forget because it isn't on Disney Plus. It is considered canon within the MCU. Probably the last time we saw him play that role was in the Black Widow movie when they yes. did the de-aging process on him. De-aged so, him, and, uh, but he was also, I believe, in Endgame. He might have even popped up in some of the Disney Plus shows, but I'd have to, I'd have to rewatch it. But he wasn't on there very long. I think he was in What If, wasn't he? I, I know his I voice think, was, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I... The, the, the thing about that, and I think that's probably the most important thing for our particular podcast with the MCU us being Geekville Radio, we've talked about many times before that it, they're going to do Thunderbolts. Feige has announced that. That's been confirmed. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about how it seems like um, 
Yelena from Black Widow and 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 now Hawkeye is going to be in that group. Baron Zemo and his return in Falcon Winter Soldier, they're setting him up to be in it. Where do they go? This isn't like Chadwick, where Chadwick died at, at a young age, and I don't think it would have made sense to recast T'Challa. And there was enough supporting characters like Shuri and stuff, they could go out, they could go, or Koi, they can go other directions. Do they do the same for William Hurt and not recast Ross? Do they do the CGI face dealio like they did with Carrie Fisher and Peter Cushing? Or do you just not have the character on there altogether and just go with the Thunderbolts? I would think, this is just me, this is if I was Kevin Feige or whoever would make that decision, I, mm-hmm. and I like the character of Thunderbolt Ross, don't get me wrong, I probably would just uh, not recast the role and just have a different character come in because as cool as the character is, it's not like he is this huge, intricate part of every single movie. I, I don't mean to sound disrespectful with that. You know, I'm saying it kind of, kind of with respect that y- you could bring another character in just to be another Secretary of State or something to that effect. And I, and I think you could do it without missing a beat. But if they did recast the role into somebody else, I wouldn't complain too too much about that either. I, I wouldn't think that they would need to do the like the CGI face thing because I don't think there's too many diehard Thunderbolt Ross fans out there that would cry foul if they and, did and, and if they want the to write the character off as dying, they already have an easy way to do it. Because if you remember at the beginning of Civil War when he shows up with the Sokovia Accords, he basically tells them he he died. He had a heart attack on the on the golf course. And then had like what, like ten hours of heart surgery and survived, and it made him mm-hmm. change his view on things. Yeah, and that's why he got out of the military and got into politics. Yeah. So if they want to write off that he died because he had a bad heart, it, it's already there. Is what I'm saying. Yeah. And they killed off Peggy Carter off camera as well. They they just kind of right. had her funeral, and Cap was a pallbearer there, and that was you know, that. that was it. Yeah. And it, it, here's the interesting thing, though, and and I and this is the sixty four thousand dollar question. Red Hulk has been teased for a long time. The Red Hulk is a fan favorite. For those who don't know, General Ross in the comic books experiments with some gamma radiation and super soldier himself and winds up becoming a variant of the Hulk who has red skin instead of green skin. And he is part of the Thunderbolts team in the comic book. So do we just drop Red Hulk altogether if we don't recast him? Or is it like the same? You can just make another character Red Hulk. Well, they made Rhodey Iron Patriot. So... I think they could True. probably get away with uh, making somebody else the Red Hulk. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. But so so I don't want to hold your feet to the fire, but I'm going to hold your feet to the fire. <laughs> if you had to say yay or nay right now, yay or nay, we probably do see the Red Remote Gross with it, we see Red Hulk in the future. I would say nay simply because most Hulk movies hoax a side character. So I don't I think if you're going to do Red Hulk, it would have to be a standalone Hulk film. That's just me. I just um, always figured he was going to be the tank character in whatever the Thunderbolts were. That's yeah, just which, how I always thought. Which, yeah, would would probably work that way. But, you know, like I said. Green Hole, the original Hole, he's basically the tank of the Avengers, you know? Right, right. And for those of you that don't don't do not uh, do role-playing games, the tank character is an archetype you have in your campaign party and role-playing games. He's the muscle, for lack of, right. or she is the muscle, for lack of a better term. Maybe not the brightest, maybe not the, the stealthiest, but if you need to smash... That's the tank character, for. And, and or the character that will is made there to attract the most fire. You know? Right, if, right, right, right. I, I played Shadowrun in college, which was a 
a role-playing game that was based in the future where magic and technological advances were side by side. Mm-hmm. And the, the tank character in our, to give, an, give people an idea of what tank characters are like, the tank character we had was a guy who played a, a troll, or, or which was the largest of all the, the non-human creatures, races. Mm-hmm. And he was the tank, and his intelligence was extremely low, extremely low. And we came up to a, a, a secured reinforced door that we tried everything to get that door down. We tried smashing him into it. We tried high explosives. We tried magic. Nothing was moving. So then one of our tech characters who was smart did some rolls and figured out that the actual door was was reinforced. The wall next to it and the door frame was not as reinforced. <laughs> so <laughs> he basically told the troll character, smash. The troll character does a roll and he went through the wall. And yeah. The wall was weaker, weaker than the door. <laughs> that, that's thinking on your feet, ladies and gentlemen. Yep. But that's what you do in yeah. role playing games. You probably had similar stories you could tell. Oh, yeah. Don't you? Yeah, definitely. But we'd be here all night. So that that's definitely to, to wind up the uh, William Hurt talk here. Obviously, outside of the MCU, I would put Gorky Park on the list to watch. I think we both agree Dark City. Like you said, Altered States as far as kind of the, the horror mind screw type movies. Mm-hmm. If you want to see his more uh, critically acclaimed, I would say The Big Chill, Kiss of the Spider Woman, Body Heat. Because mm-hmm. that was like his his run when he was like a critical Golden Globe Oscar kind of darling. Right. Don't you agree? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I'll give links to those movies in the show notes at geekbillradio.com slash 302. So moving on to the regular news here, uh, Deadpool 3 has landed a director, which really shouldn't be too surprising. It's going to be directed by Sean Levy. Oh, whose last two movies include Free Guy and a current movie, I believe it's on uh, Netflix right now, The Adam Project. Yep. And both of those movies star Ryan Reynolds. So and he seems like a natural fit to do a Deadpool movie, I'd say, right? Yeah, it seems like him and Ryan have got quite the team up going. Right. I watched Adam Project, oh, just just like yesterday or two days ago, because it just dropped like on Friday. And... uh I'm not going to spoil it because I assume you eventually are going to going to watch it, Seth. And at some point, mm-hmm. we probably can review it for this show for the, an episode of Geekville. But this movie stars Jennifer Garner, Mark Ruffalo, Ryan Reynolds, and Zoe Saldana. So yes, okay. this is a movie that has Elektra, Doctor Banner, Deadpool, and Gamora all in it. So <laughs> yep. mm-hmm. that's definitely geek all the way. Don't you agree? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And. If that's not geek enough, there are fans lobbying to cast Hugh Jackman in Deadpool 3, apparently, even if it's not as Wolverine. Because, I mean, you know, Hugh Jackman's gone on record saying he's probably not doing Wolverine again because the character was written off in, in Logan. Right. So it would be interesting to see if they do some kind of nod to each other. Like, like what was it, the, the Mel Gibson Maverick movie where they have Danny Glover in it for uh, like 30 right. seconds and they just kind of look at each other like, what? Hmm? Well, one that goes all the way back to uh, our very first episode of Nostalgia Trip. Love that episode of Smallville, mm-hmm. where, of course, Jonathan Kent is portrayed by John Schneider, Bo Duke, in the Dukes of Hazard, And they had Tom Wopat as a guest star, who, of course, was Luke Duke. And they even do a scene at the end where there's an old muscle car that they, that they're, they're both friends. Mm-hmm. And, and Tom Wolpat even does the hood slide and nah, and then and then opens the doors to the go into the window, which yeah. I thought was, was fantastic. Not even a yep. fan of Smallville, but that episode was great for that yeah. very reason. And, and even when they're driving in the car, which also is a '69 Charger, same as the General Lee, it's like they they do the camera placements just exactly like how they would have been in Dukes of Hazard. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep, exactly. 
and I, and I believe I could be wrong. I believe Mel Gibson and Danny Glover really are friends in real life. I think Tom Wopat and John Schneider are really oh, yeah. friends in yeah. real life. So it makes yeah. sense. <laughs> yep, definitely. Now, uh, staying in the Marvel realm here, we're actually going to be getting a few months ahead here. I know it's only uh, March, uh, but Marvel is going to have a Halloween special called Werewolf by Night. I, I'm assuming it's going to air on Disney+. Plus. I don't know. But the interesting thing about this, other than the name Werewolf by Night, which we will get to because there is a definite significance of that name, but it is going to be directed by Michael Giacchino. I hope I'm saying that right. Who is an you're, Oscar-winning... You're, you're, you're up on your Italian, huh? <laughs> right, right. But uh, Oscar-winning uh, composer, he's currently known for doing the music for the Batman, which we'll talk about later. But he's also done several other movies he's done the incredibles uh, a lot of other disney films i think he's doing lord thor love and thunder but that's the thing is he's a guy who's been a music composer he is going to be directing this special or this movie so it'll be interesting to see somebody who's known for music doing directing when it comes to acting now well, I'll let... music composers usually do direct but it's with a baton and it's a yeah. choir or an orchestra it's yeah, not, yeah, not good, behind a camera <laughs> good, good point there and now i'll let you uh, take the reins here as far as uh werewolf by night i'm sure some of our listeners know the significance of that name if they read comics in the 70s and it's connected to a character we're going to be talking about quite a bit in the coming weeks here so werewolf by night what's the significance of that name well of, of course with moon knight coming starring jason isaacs it is Quite interesting that the the debut of the character Mark Spector, the Moon Knight, in the comics was Werewolf by Night. Yeah. Werewolf by Night was one of those comics that came out right after Tomb of Dracula, which was what introduced Blade, when Stan Lee was the editor of Marvel, and the writers came to him with all these horror ideas, and because of the comics code that was passed in the 50s, they didn't do horror stuff in comics anymore. That was mm-hmm. a backlash to the EC comics like Vault of Horror and Tales of the Crypt. Right. And Stan read them and he's like, these are really good, but we can't publish them. And they were like, why not? And all kudos to Stan. You're right. Why can't we? We just won't put the, co- yeah. won't put the sticker on there. Exactly. We can publish them. We can just say they're not approved by the comics code because they're not going to be. Right. And how different would comic books have been if Stan hadn't had the, the foresight to do that? Yeah. I, I don't want to get too sidetracked on Stan because I believe we talked about it when he when he passed but he did the same thing for spider-man because spider-man had a story that involved drug use and the mm-hmm. comic code was like oh well you can't show drugs and stan's like but this is a negative view on drugs and how drugs are a problem it's like oh well it has drugs right. in it so stan's like okay well we just won't put the code on them right you know? right and i don't think there's any argument that blade has gone on to become one of the more popular characters in marvel because of the movies mm-hmm. and i think if done right, and I think it will be done right, I think Moon Knight stands to be the same once the, the series drops. We don't yeah. have those characters if Stan doesn't make that call. Right, so exactly. I, I wonder, when, when does when does Moon Knight drop in May? It, it drops actually March 31st. I think it's the end of the March, Ooh. so about two, two weeks from now. So we will put a primer episode for that. Once again, I'll let Train handle the reins and the heavy lifting on that because I know he knows... I'm the Marvel guy, but he probably knows more about Moon Knight than I do, although I have the good general knowledge. The one thing I'll drop here, at least as far as what we know about the Moon Knight series, is that Uh it is going to be, at this point, 
completely standalone. It's not going to have any direct contact with anything in the MCU, meaning we're not going to have any other established characters. This is going to be just Mark Spector, Oscar Isaac, and it's going to be that story. We're not going to have anybody else jump in to connect to another show, which, quite frankly, I think we kind of need after everything else being connected with everything else and all the other Marvel things. I get a feeling it is going to be in this. It is going to be canon. It is it's oh, just, yeah. like you're saying, they're not going to have any crossover. Right. So that makes me lead to where I was going to go. If this is a Halloween special, it's going to be months after the Moon Knight series has dropped. You know, months exactly. Later. Yeah. Could this be the crossover? Could this even be the introduction of Blade? It's very you know, possible. Which we, we, we've already seen Blade. Spoiler alert. We, we've already talked about this, though. We've already seen Blade in the post-credit to, what was that? To Hawkeye, at least. We heard mm-hmm. Marshal Ali's voice when, when what's his name? Garrett goes to grab, goes, you know, goes to, goes to grab the, the, the Dark Blade. And he is, and we know, because it's already been announced by Feige, that he is going to become the good guy, Black Knight. That was all set up or in, in was that Hawkeye? No, that wasn't Hawkeye. What was that? Eternal? What was that? Was it Eternals? Eternals, Eternals. Sorry, yeah, Eternals, yeah. Eternals. Excuse me. And so anyway, we know that, but it seems to me if you're going to have a Halloween special and you already will have introduced Moon Knight by this point and you've already teased that Blade's coming, doesn't it make sense for Blade to show up in this too, possibly? Yeah, and the characters definitely work because you have a very dark character in Moon Knight that kind of has the horror elements there. And of course, Blade obviously being a vampire hunter. It, hey, it, it he's totally half fits. vampire himself. He's yeah. a hybrid. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, I mean, that, that, totally that will sense. be, I, I, I being the horror guy will look very forward to that, but I think you will too, because it's yeah. Marvel. Yeah. One other thing in the Marvel realm here, and it's going to be kind of hard to talk about an image here and an audio, so I will put a link to the image at the show notes, geeklerradio.com slash 302. And that's for the Doctor Strange and the <laughs> Multiverse of Madness. There was a pretty complex photo that was put in the pages of Empire Magazine. And you kind of see Doctor Strange almost looking kind of like Vishnu or something like that with all the different arms going around. And mm-hmm. I don't know if that, it looks almost like those might be different versions of Strange with the different arms. But right, you look around and you do see America Chavez in one corner. You see all the little portals that seem to be giving glimpses into... Other multiverses, looks like you see Shumagoroth's tentacles there, which I think that we saw in uh, What If. Uh, what If. Yeah. Wanda sitting there, Indian style, meditating mm-hmm. in front of him. Baron Mordo down there um, mm-hmm. with what looks like, what, a crossbow or something, doesn't it? Yeah, that does kind of look like a crossbow. And then it in looks the like upper, what, upper left corner looks like. What does it look like? A bison head or something like that? Something with a. Like, 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 like maybe a minotaur is what I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah, it could be. We've seen Asgardians so far, and but for those that don't know, in the Marvel comics, there's also the pantheon of Greek gods as well. Yes. You know, Hercules, yes, that Hercules is a member of the Avengers in the comic book at different times. Yeah. It looks like over here on the right-hand side, does that look a T-Rex to you? I didn't notice that before, but yeah. So maybe we're going to deal with time and time travel and, and dimensional travel? I don't know. Or maybe it's a dimension where dinosaurs never died. Yeah. You know? could, it, could, it could be. So we know or we're getting... Or could be the Savage Lands. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> All right. So moving out of the Marvel Universe, we are going to the Star Wars Universe. We heard the little tease at the beginning of the episode with Obi-Wan Kenobi's hello there. 
And unless you've been frozen on carbonite for the last month or so, you might have heard that Disney finally released a trailer for the highly anticipated series Obi-Wan Kenobi. And uh, I did kind of a deep dive into the trailer on our website, Geekville Radio, which again, I'll, I'll put a link there for geekvilleradio.com. And now, as far as what you saw in it, we didn't really see that much comparatively. We did see the Lars Homestead. We saw young Luke. We saw the Inquisitors. And so I'm just kind of curious. This was your first time actually seeing the Inquisitors kind of in motion, right? Because I know who they are, but this mm. was your first time kind of seeing them in person, right? Yeah, I'd, I'd only seen like, because I didn't watch Rebels and, and Clone Wars like you did. I had seen like thumbnails and, and like the screen captures of the Inquisitors. And it looks like the makeup they've got was pretty, pretty close to what we saw in the animated version, you know? Yeah, yeah. There, there is some backlash because the the head doesn't kind of look as tall and skinny as it does in Rebels. Because I think the species is similar to like one of the characters you saw in Revenge of the Sith. It just kind of had that long, kind of skinny, almost corduroy skin looking looking character. But mm -hmm. I also think that they, that could be something we we only see a few glimpses of his head in in the trailer. There might be something as far as the ca the camera placement. What I've said about the Grand Inquisitor, I think we've talked about this off mic, because I, I said I think he had probably the best lightsaber gimmick that we've seen. Mm -hmm. You see right. a little bit of it. You see a glimpse of it because he's saying, like, where is he or something like that. And you see the lightsaber spinning around like he's got a dual lightsaber. Mm -hmm. What I mean about the gimmick is he's not spinning that like you might see Darth Maul doing it. He's not doing it with his hands. You see that he's got kind of a, a circle that his double-bladed saber is around, what he does is he'll hold it out like a sphere, and then the blades just spin around like a wheel. And like that, a gyroscope almost. Exactly, yeah. That That's kind of how to... And then almost mm. kind of a Lex Luthor vibe, and the right thing, he can actually hold it above him, and he'll actually kind of fly like a helicopter for a little bit. Not mm. very fast, but like like I said, you probably remember Lex Luthor doing that in the old Superman comics. Let me ask you, are the Inquisitors, are they Force-sensitives? Yes, they are not Sith. Uh, that was the next thing I was going to go. They're, they're not full-on Sith, because there can only be two, of course. But they are basically right. trained by Vader, and they're just kind of like his... I don't know if cops is the word, but they're they're his assistants, you might say. And there is between seven or ten of them. The Grand Inquisitor, as you could imagine, he's, he's like the big one. He's like Darth Vader's right-hand man. You could call it that, yeah. And then the others, they're really just called sisters or brother. So they're, I, I think he would, since he's grand, he'd probably be considered the first. And mm. the black woman that we see, the character of Reva, I forget that's a, that's a Moses. I forget the actress's last name, uh, Moses Ingram. It looks like she's going to be the main villain in this. Because there is a little bit where you see the Grand Inquisitor talking to her in some Imperial complex. And you, that's where you, you can kind of see the circular gimmick. Uh, lightsaber on his back there mm. but there's another inquisitor that we do see elsewhere in star wars and rebels he's got this big kind of almost kind of uh three musketeer looking hat like a tricorn yeah he's the fifth brother he shows up a lot in rebels although when he gets taken out because spoiler alert for a show that ended about five years ago the fifth brother i think actually gets taken out by darth maul himself 
because the Inquisitors wind up having a rumble with Darth Maul and it doesn't win well for them. <laughs> so yeah, well he's he's really pissed by this. Point, yeah, you know. Yeah, uh, he's half the man. He's he used been. He's he's literally half the man he used yeah, to be. Yeah, yeah. As, um, uh, as uh, I think was so Kirk the Obama Inquisitors used to say, are but, not that are not that dissimilar from the Knights of Ren. In the, I think in the that's new trilogy. a fair comparison. Dark side of the Force users, Force sensitives, but not actually Sith. Right, right. And there's actually another image though of Reva, third sister. She's, the, the garb she's got on almost kind of makes her look like a female version of Vader. But that that just may be uh, cosmetic. That could just be a yeah, well, coincidence. Yeah, also, you got to remember too. Obviously, the tech that Palpatine used to encase Anakin to keep him alive. Was probably it, it's technical. It was mm-hmm. her stuff? They all work for the Empire. It's probably all built by the same company. Yeah, yeah. It would it would make sense because we're really not that far removed from Episode Three. So, I mean, I guess a, a real world analogy would be like an Alt, a, a Nissan Altima, and a Toyota Camry look very similar. Yeah, you know, same kind of thing. You know, these are both Japanese automobiles, same size cars. So. It just kind of makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and one other thing that I think I can say from the, not necessarily we saw in the trailer, but we did see image releases from the Entertainment Weekly. There's other images of Obi-Wan that are not in the trailer. And clearly the beard's a little longer. You might even see a little bit of gray here and there. So it, I think that fits my suspicion all along that this series is going to take place over several years. You know that that yeah. And I it, I think based on on seeing the young Luke, we have this gap between Obi Wan giving a baby Luke to Owen and Baru, and then we don't see him again until he's Sir Alec Guinness, and Luke is in his early twenties, late teens, right. with with New Hope. So there's about what about a twenty year gap there. Right, right, exactly. And I also think this is my own suspicion here because we do definitely see Owen Lars. We do have. Uh, mm-hmm. What's the actor's name uh, re- re- reprising the role? Is it? Uh, um, oh, I, I can't think of his name right now. Because we know that by the time A New Hope comes around, he's no friend of Obi-Wan's. You know, no. Always kind of. And so this is this is the question that I pose here is that is it possible? How much does Owen actually know? Does he know that Anakin became Vader? Is it possible Obi-Wan didn't tell him the truth and Owen found out through other means? And that, that's the resentment or did he know and just kind of blamed Obi-Wan anyway? I think we're going to get an answer to that question. We're going to find out how much does Owen actually know. I think regardless, I think Owen knows that Anakin became Darth Vader. Cause if you remember in new hope, when Baru says you're worried, he's going to become mm-hmm. too much like his, he has too much of his father in him. Right. And, and Owen basically says, yep. Yeah. Obviously it was Owen's father who, who freed me. And married her, Anakin's mm-hmm. mother, and and so, if nothing else, they have Shmi's knowledge of of who Anakin was and why right. he isn't with her anymore. And then maybe we fill in the gas. But I think based on that one line of dialogue in in Episode Four, it's pretty well established that Owen and Baru know one who Anakin is and two what he became. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. By the way, another thing that I'd always wondered about with Obi Wan is. It doesn't necessarily mean that Obi-Wan spent every day of those 20 years sitting in a desert on Tatooine waiting for Luke to mature. It very possibly could be that he had to go off world for something. Maybe Maybe it's to pursue the Inquisitors. Yeah. Or or maybe Obi-Wan for years thought that Anakin died on Mustafar. I think it's very possible he thought that that's why he walked away because he just left him there to die. 
And then yeah. he finds out later that Anakin is Obi-Wan and that Anakin is Vader and has to leave. It's also possible as soon as he handed Luke off to Owen, he took off somewhere because he thought he had something to do, commune with Qui-Gon mm. or whatever. Because right. that's, that's the one thing that if they don't have, I will, I will be disappointed and I will vocalize my disappointment on these airwaves. I hope we get Qui-Gon in some capacity. It doesn't have to be a force ghost. If it's a voice or a flashback or something like that, if we get some acknowledgement of Qui-Gon, I'll be happy. Like I said, he doesn't, he doesn't have to be very long. Maybe he's communing just voice to voice or something like that. I hope sure. we get Qui-Gon in something. I'd, I'd say I'd predict that that's going to happen. No, I think that's I think that's a fair assessment. I think it's obvious that both of us are highly anticipating this. I think most of our listeners are too. Okay. One other last thing that I would mention about Obi-Wan is I think it confirms the suspicions that this was going to be one and done because I think Ewan McGregor himself said it was going to be one and done. If you look at the end of that trailer, when the Obi-Wan Kenobi name comes across, it does say limited series streaming May 25th. And none of the mm. other Star Wars shows have ever said limited in it. They would just say starts whenever this is the only one that says limited so i think yeah there's, there's no second season coming up it's just going to be uh six episodes however long it is and that's going to be it yeah well i don't think there you could do anything like we said it's a 20-year gap yeah and we know how it ends then again you're the one that is aptly point out you think george lucas milked this to death wait till disney gets hold of it yeah so, <laughs> never say never <laughs> which i guess we can wrap it up with this the question i have for you with the abysmal failure that was Solo mm -hmm. and the, the, the cancellation of several other characters' backstories as, as standalone movies, but then the success of the, the, the retcon slash redeveloping of Boba Fett. Mm -hmm. So I, I want to ask you the question, do you think that had they made Solo a television show, and a series, as opposed to the movie, would have had success. Maybe this was the formula they should have gone with all along. What What, what do you think? Yeah, I, I agree. I think had Solo been, been given the Mandalorian treatment, it would have done better. I, I, I actually think that's... Again, they could have done more detail, uh, and they could have done uh, basically a trilogy worth of stories and one mm -hmm. series, I think. Now, of course, of course, that, that wasn't an option at the time because Disney Plus hadn't started yet. Right. Uh, when they made Solo, but it, 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 I've, I've wondered that ever since the success of Mandalorian and Boba Fett, because I remember when they announced they were going to do these standalone movies, Obi-Wan was one of the movies that they that, that was strongly hinted at becoming mm -hmm. a standalone movie. Yep. Uh, I think Jabba was too, wasn't it? I, it was uh, talked about, I think, because I remember there was a speculation of could they do an R-rated Star Wars with a Jabba the Hutt, because you could probably get away with that. Probably could. I don't know. Once it got in the hands of Disney, though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's kind of like, I think that, that puts us in the same territory that we have now with what is Disney going to do with Deadpool? It's the right. same kind of thing. Well, because remember, still Logan own... was not, was not a Disney movie. It was, it was a Fox movie. Right. And I think at this point, it's still not in D on Disney Plus, although there is the news that all those Netflix series are coming to Disney Plus and they're, they're adding like a code, I guess, for uh, parental control. So, yeah, maybe oh, okay. we'll see that with Deadpool then. I, I was just assuming it was going to go to Hulu or something like that. Hulu, yeah, because they own Hulu too, but who knows? Yeah. And how long do we have to wait until Obi-Wan drops? That is coming out uh, May 25th, which of That's course That's the one is... that came out in May. I had, yeah. I, had, I had the dates flipped, sorry. 
<laughs> yeah, which is, of course, Star Wars Day to many of us. Or actually, May, May, May 4th. Yeah, May the 4th is Star Wars Day, and I guess May 25th is second Star Wars Day. So, so. For those that don't know, May 25th, 1977 was when the original Star Wars debuted in theaters. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will switch gears out of Marvel, out of Disney, and we'll dive into the long-awaited Batman movie, The Batman. This is Geekville Radio, and we will be right back. Are you looking for a gaming-themed podcast? Then check out You Just Got Fragged. Join host Jared Aubrey and his panel of gaming enthusiasts as they discuss news and accomplishments in the gaming world, and of course, the gripe of the week. That's all at YouJustGotFragged.com, part of the Wrestling Brethren podcast family. All Time Lords and Ladies, Geek Girl Radio presents Examining the Doctor, a weekly look at everybody's favorite Time Lord, the Doctor. Join Mark and Seth as they bring their signature blend of knowledge and humor to favorite and not-so-favorite episodes of Doctor Who. From Hartnell to Capaldi, Examining the Doctor provides episode commentaries for classic and current Doctor Who fans alike. Examining the Doctor, available on iTunes, Stitcher, and at GeekGoRadio.com. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Spoiler All right, with that spoiler tag out of the way, because I don't think we even need a spoiler-free summary here. We'll just dive into this. The Batman finally hit after like, gosh, it's like a year or two delay. Yeah. And I think one of the best punchlines that came out of this I wish I could say I came up with it myself, but I'm sure dozens, if not hundreds or thousands of people came up with this independently, was that the Batman has shown that vampires do turn into bats. Yes, because yeah, so, <laughs> I actually had high hopes for Robert Pattinson in this. I Because I, I'd seen him in some of the other stuff that he's done, and he's actually very, very good. People just remember him for Twilight. And again, it goes back to what we talk about whenever we mention actors in different roles. Actors act to please directors, not necessarily audiences. So he has to learn well, to go I, with the I right director. I stand by my assessment. Do you hate Robert Pattinson, or do you hate the fact that he happened to be the star of, of a franchise you didn't like? Right. You know, because there is a difference. I'm I'm kind of glad they went this way. I thought he was a good casting from the get-go. Mm-hmm. I, I had some problems with his portrayal, but we'll get into that as we we dive more into the breakdown of it. But I, overall, I was pleased with it. But I also have given the caveat and that for casual fans of comic book movies who don't read the comic books hardcore like you and me, if they go into this film expecting to get a Marvel popcorn type summer blockbuster, they are going to be sorely disappointed. That's the only caveat that I would give. Well, what mm-hmm. say ye? Yeah, that that is fair because and and I think the last couple DC movies, I think we're doing a good job of kind of doing the the superhero summer blockbuster, whether it was uh, Wonder Woman or uh, Aquaman. I think those are probably the the best versions of them. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's Shazam too. You know, yeah, yeah, that, that that fits in there. But this is definitely a gritty, ground based type movie. The best way I think I could describe it is this isn't so much a superhero movie as much as it is a noir detective story. Mm-hmm. with Batman as the detective 
and Riddler as the serial killer because they definitely amped up the serial killer element in, in the Riddler, which I thought was fine. I'm sure there's plenty of examples of the Riddler killing people in the comics. Yeah, I, I, I argue with that summary, and it's not that I think you're wrong or people that have made that comparison wrong. A lot of it probably has to do with my extremely twisted interest in real-life serial killers and the field I work in and mental health. Mm-hmm. A serial killer has to kill. It is right. literally, they're an addict. They're addicted to the kill. And I know Matt Reeves, when he wrote the script, was very inspired by the real-life serial killer, the Zodiac Killer. And the look that he goes for with the Riddler is could be the Zodiac. We, we don't right. have any pictures of him. But we have artists rendering of some of the, the 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 people that survived his attacks down to the 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 bag shaped head or bag shape or sack shaped um, bag shaped mask he wears with horn rim glasses over the mask so he could see the use of ciphers to kind of taunt and play with the police. This is all part of the real life Zodiac. Remember Zodiac, one mm-hmm. of the few big time serial killers that was never caught. Right, and so much like Jack the Ripper, they're probably the two most famous big time serial killers who were never caught. So I get that why people make that parallel, but I think, and this is once again, this is, this is because of my, my profession more than it is. I think to the uninitiated people who, who are normal and not abnormal like me and really delve into serial killer and their psyche, it it comes across very serial killerish. Right. But, but I don't think he really is a serial killer. I take it more along the lines of what the Riddler is in the comics which is an extremely twisted, narcissistic individual who wants attention. And the biggest way he can find attention is by proving he is smarter than Batman. And if that means people have to die in the process, oh, well. Of course, another motivation in this is his broken psyche because of how he was of his, of his own use and the corruption that exists in Gotham and how this corruption led him to have such a broken childhood. So this is a dual motivation that he has, but it never once did I feel that his motivation was purely and solely because I have to kill people. The right. only Batman villain that I know of, and I know Batman really, really well, that is a true serial killer in a real world definition of a serial killer is Victor Zaz. Zaz, yeah. Yeah, which is probably also why Batman has said of all the all the all the rogues in his rogues gallery, as much as he is disturbed by all of them up to and including the Joker, no one disturbs him more than Victor's ass because of Batman's no kill policy and that being the only motivation that Zaz has. So that I that's just me. You're you're really getting the weeds and splitting hairs with that. But mm-hmm. if if you want to say that he's a serial killer, I get it. I'm just saying I, I I'm 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 telling people right now, if this was real forensic people the, the 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 behavioral science people at the fbi people in my field would not consider even this riddler a serial killer they would not they would consider right. him an extremely twisted narcissistic individual who has he's a sociopath and a psychopath but not a serial killer does I, that does that delineation make sense to you when i broke it down that way yeah because uh, the way i had put it in my review was that he was a serial killer more like what you'd see on an episode of csi if that makes any sense what yes, they might depict yes, the serial yes. very, killers very being ho- on that show. Very, Hollywood, very Hollywood-esque. Yeah, because he's doing um, it also in a way where he's trying to ex- expose the corruption in the Gotham legal system and in the uh, Gotham politics. 
an interesting thing, not to get sidetracked, but on serial killers, if you understand the criterion that must be met for the FBI to say someone is a serial killer, only requires, I think they've changed it recently. It used to be just two killings, but now it's three. So the body count is not what we normally think of in the Hollywoodized version of a serial killer. Because that criteria is much smaller than most people realize, there are lots of quote-unquote serial killers that exist in this country and in the world. Thing of it is, most of them get caught and most of them don't kill that many people. Obviously, any murder is bad. One murder is too many. One too many. But most serial killers get caught. They're not very smart. It's just the ones that get all the press are the very smart ones that have a large body count. The reason they have a large body count is because they're smart. The BTKs, the Ted Bundys, the Gacy's, the, the, the Dahmers, they're the smart ones. They get all the press. There are they represent maybe two percent or less of all the serial killers that get right. that get caught. And I, I put this more at the feet of the media than I do movies and television. It's like I understand you don't want to give these people a lot of publicity because that's part of what they're craving. But at the same time, let's be honest, it isn't out of altruism that the media doesn't cover them. It's the the body count's so low; it's not scandalous enough. It's not right. scintillating enough for them. And that that stab. Yeah, well, I think one thing I can add into this to kind of go with what you're talking about uh, with serial killers and why many of them get taught. So you're talking about it's kind of an addiction they have to kill. Therefore, a good detective mm-hmm. might notice any sort of pattern that comes with addictions, quite frankly. Right. And, and that's how they're able to predict where things go. Because I don't want to get into too much here because it's just way too personal. But I know people in my life that have dealt with addictions. And you mm. eventually begin to notice the pattern when they're falling off the wagon. I think it's kind of a similar thing like, you know, with serial killers that you might notice the pattern yeah. as far as how the murders take place. Yeah. Once again, to, to go to a real life example, the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez, that mm-hmm. was what made him extremely difficult to catch was he had no pattern. He was one of the most scattershot serial killers that has ever existed. There was no rhyme or reason or continuity to any of his crimes. And that made him particularly hard because then he didn't fit into these boxes that investigators typically use. Whereas I will say this about the Riddler and the way he's presented here. He very much fits in a box. There's a pattern, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And, and so uh, that leads me to the, the, one of the things I loved about this movie. We all know that Batman is one of his many monikers is world's greatest detective. Well, let's be honest, whether it's Ben Affleck, whether it's Adam West, whether it's whoever, Michael Keaton, Christian Bale, there has always been in live-action portrayals of Batman very minimal detect. I mean, we see a little bit in, in The Dark Knight when he does the little 3D reconstruction of the bullet fragment, some stuff like that. But this movie really dives into seeing Batman be a detective. Yeah. You know? Like when he first follow- shows up at that crime scene with, with, with Gordon and the guy who was the commissioner at the time, of course, gets off by the Riddler a few scenes later, and the Riddler's giving him the riddles, and Batman just gets it right off the bat. What what, what yep. happens yep. when a what happens when a liar dies? He lies still, right? You know, and that, and that's and the other people are like, okay, this guy this guy can work with us, right? And it's, so I, I enjoyed that. I do think once again, going back to my original caveat, if you don't like detective stories and you don't like like kind of mind games like that or whatever. And you're going into this expecting to see a lot of action, which there is a lot of action in this movie. Yeah. Don't make any bones about Just it. Just not in the first two acts. <laughs> right, right. Let's be honest. 
back to what I was saying about all these other portrayals, Batman punches his way out of all his problems, you know, mm-hmm. or pulls a gadget out. We don't see that here. And what gadgets we do see often are in line with the detective side of Batman, that the contact lens they use. Mm-hmm. How in the comic books, Batman has uh, photographic men- memory and photographic recall, which obviously aids him immensely in, in, in detective work because he can see things and remember it all and then recall it later on when he's in the Batcave. Well, here they don't bring that up. They just have this like high tech contact lens that he wears that has some kind of, you know, computer chip in it and, and video and audio recording equipment that records everything. So he can go back and then like watch it again on the back computer. I thought that was brilliant. Yeah. And then it was, it was brilliant as, as a, as a writer myself. I like the fact that later on in the movie, he can't go into an environment. He has to send Catwoman and Selena in to, to, you know, basically be his mole and he puts the contact on her. So mm-hmm. now you have established this particular form of tech and its ability to be inconspicuous. So it makes sense when he gives it to Catwoman to, to use. Yeah. And, and he basically got her mic'd and he's trying to guide her through and then. Right. Go south after just, that, so like, to speak. These are little details that are often forgotten, even in the better Batman stories. And that to me, that's just good writing. You introduce something that seems innocuous or kind of like, oh, well, that's cool early mm-hmm. in the story, but then return to that device later on. And now you understand why it was introduced in the first place. Right. Know? Yeah, what what's the word? Uh, what is it like Chekhov's gun or something like that? That that that, yes, that theory. Like, and... Yeah, yes, exactly. Well, as you like to say all the time when we talk about wrestling, you don't dangle that carrot unless there's a payoff in the end. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. One other thing that I actually thought of while watching the movie because of how dark it was and just kind of the the noir feel of it is that it did kind of have a Dark City feel to it, where it's like there was a mm-hmm. little bit of old school with the noir, but there was still like the technology and stuff. I think kind of thing yes. I, I thought I, I thought at the time, I didn't think about it again until just now, because we mentioned Dark City earlier, we're talking about William Hurt. Mm-hmm. Well, Gotham, the TV show was similar to that. Yeah, it's like they have cell phones, but yet the cop cars are still like Dodge Diplomats from the 80s. I'm glad you brought that up. I really enjoyed Matt Reeves' look of Gotham City in mm-hmm. this movie. We've gotten the Tim Burton Gotham City, which was carried on by what's his name that just passed away. They did Batman Forever and Batman and Robin. Oh, um, yeah. We even talked about him when he, when he passed yeah. away. Joel, Joel Schumacher. Joel Schumacher. Joel Schumacher. Their Gotham City was quite cartoonish, let's be honest. Yeah. And the Adam West 66 Batman was obviously Los Angeles. Yeah. And all due respect to Nolan and his attempts to ground Batman in reality. It was obvious that this was Chicago or New York City. It yeah. was, you know. And there were definitely some Chicago locations used in the Matt Reeves because that was definitely Chicago City yes. Hall. So. Right, right. Oh, it was. It was without, without a question. But the way he dressed the set was mm-hmm. was a nice medium between the Nolan and the Burton. Mm-hmm. Where if you're a big fan of the Batman comic books, that Gotham City is as much a character in the Batman mythos as anything else. It's just as much as Batman, Commissioner Gordon, Joker, or anything else. And this felt like a modern city that was decaying, where yeah. corruption was rampant, where unemployment and crime was high, and it didn't seem like it was a shoving it in your face, Hollywoodized version of that. It seemed more real than either portrayals we had before. I don't know what your thoughts were on that. 
Yeah, because that's always kind of been how Gotham was. Because Batman was always supposed to be this inverse of Superman, where yep. uh, Metropolis was always kind of bright and shiny depicted. Gotham was dark and dreary and very, very New Yorkish. One other joke I'll say about the Chicago thing is that if you've never been to Chicago and haven't seen City Hall, go watch the Blues Brothers where the Bluesmobile disintegrates on the steps of City Hall. And then go That's watch awesome. Batman. You'll see like the you'll see like the exact Ooh. same spot where that happens. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, you and me, when we were prepping it. You had talked about how for you this had a lot of uh, of the feel of the Frank Miller Batman stories. Yeah. Uh, t- for me, it had a lot of feels of the Denny, Dennis O'Neill mm-hmm. run on Batman in the seventies, which was right around that same time we talked about earlier with the two big comic book companies and Marvel and DC realizing we don't need to put the comic codes on there. Right. So DC was moving away from this silly sci-fi family friendly based Batman of the fifties and sixties to a darker, grittier Batman where actually it was a return to what he had been early on. And Dennis mm-hmm. O'Neill did that. And I think he did and that also with uh green arrow. Cause I think he was writing green did. arrow a similar time as well. He did that iconic and very historic storyline about, about Roy being a heroin addict mm-hmm. and, and, and Ollie being so, focused on fighting crime he didn't even realize his own ward was strung out in a junkie and it was you know how jordan green Lantern had to wake him up to it but yeah, i think i think anyway. i still have the trade paperback version of his run on the green lantern uh green arrow team-up book yep yeah, we ran for about to, two years yeah, yeah that was right before the bat <laughs> that was right before the batman run in the mid-70s what i was going to say is that denny o'neill himself has said the way he wrote gotham was supposed to be like somewhere around the Bowery after midnight in the mid to late seventies. And if you know the history of New York city and, and then I can't remember who was after Koch was, it was Giuliani. They basically came in and revitalized New York city. It was an Mm -hmm. extremely dirty crime ridden city for a long time. And there were just certain parts of way uptown, like across 110th street into Harlem and Spanish Harlem and way downtown, like, right on the Bowery, right there by the ferry to Liberty Island, was you did not go there after dark. Right. There was just <laughs> prostitutes and drug dealers and crazy people, literally crazy people, you know, people yeah. that were homeless because they were not all with it. That was the the Gotham that he created in the 70s. That's, he said, yeah. you know, this was like New York City in the Bowery after midnight in 1976. Yeah. To, to steal that, a line from Bruce Springsteen, it's uh, the part of town where when you hit a red light, you don't stop? Yeah. And so I think you living in Chicago, there's still parts of Chicago, yep. like on the south side, that are like that. <laughs> yeah, south side's always kind of been looked at as being the, the bad side of town. <laughs> it, is, it isn't up north on the, on the, on the lake, right. <laughs> as they say in risky business. <laughs> right. How do you know I'm the kind of woman, I'm going to want this kind of woman? Because she's the kind of woman every boy on the north lives on the lake up north. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But anyway, I digress. Yeah. But you um, as a Chicago probably really appreciate that line probably more than most. But uh, anyway, I think that the look that Matt Reeves gave Gotham really fits that description Denny O'Neill gave. Don't you? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. One other thing I'll, I'll add as far as the style, I don't know if it was a direct influence or not, but there's that scene in the first act of the movie, when these street thugs basically get into a rumble with Batman, I can't help but think that it was kind of a tribute to the Michael Keaton Batman, where they say, who, who are you? And he says, I'm Vengeance instead of I'm Batman. But right. the fight scenes were very well done in that, especially in that beginning, because it, it almost felt like you were watching 
somebody play the Arkham Asylum game series with the way he was like taking down people and mm-hmm. I I liked and you see this in the Arkham Asylum the Arkham games you see it in the run of the comic books this was a very unrefined Batman because remember this is only supposed to be the second year of his crime fighting right, right. Crime essentially fighting. Young around Batman. year one year two which was a Frank Miller run right. so. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Miller and Masticelli. Yeah, exactly right. And so I think that Batman, not going to say Batman became a cough, softer, kinder Batman as he got older. He didn't. <laughs> right. But I do think that he was much more rage fueled when he was younger. Mm-hmm. And that shows in the fight scenes here. He hadn't learned that, okay, he's unconscious. I need to stop hitting him. That's yeah. kind of depicted very well in this. It's just, you got what I'm talking about. It was literally, he was raging when he fought those thugs. And fast forward 10 years, Batman still hurts him and puts him in the hospital, but he knows when to stop. He knows when you to know? stop. Yeah. He knows. Well, if nothing else, he realizes I'm not as young as I used to be. I need to reserve my energy. But I think that was to stay on the Batman. That was one of the issues I did have with Pattinson's casting. It's not Pattinson did a bad job. I, and, and, and once again, to reference, you act for directors in the script, not for whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, he did seem to me to not be as good at Bruce Wayne. He was great as Batman. He was ex- excellent as Batman. He was lacking Bruce Wayne where guys like Val Kilmer and and Michael Keaton and Christian Bale, I thought, did a much better job. But then also, except for those few moments in which we where there was a lot of anger and rage when he thought about getting a gun and killing somebody, the Christian Bale Batman, no one of those other movies present us with a young, unrefined Batman either. You know? Right. So except for, like I said, that, that one scene in Batman Begins with Christian Bale. And he does go down that path where he gets the gun and he considers murdering. kill, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So other than that, we've never, ever seen it before. So I don't know what I was expecting, but he was very, I don't know, like something was missing. And then I, this is not his fault. It just is what it is. It, it's, it's what God gave him. That emo haircut he has was not doing him any favors. That was probably the biggest issue I had, is that just did not look like a Bruce Wayne-type haircut. Bruce Wayne would have had a much more, I don't know, tailored word, but, you know, he'd have his hair would would have a lot of attention paid to it. Yeah. That was why I knew Christian Bale was going to be great as Batman, because I'd seen American Psycho. So I had seen mm-hmm. Bateman at, with, with, with the perfectly kept hair and, and, and the tailored suit. And I'm, that's Batman. Obviously, he's not, he's not Bateman in a psych serial killer but you get my point the the aesthetic look and that was the only problem i mean as far as batman goes he's one of the best batman i've ever seen he really hit that but he was yeah. a little eh, as bruce wayne but i don't think he was given a lot to do with and he was also maybe that ties into the the fight scenes where he's still this young rage-filled man who's trying to yeah. figure out his 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 way and things yeah you, know? you definitely see that when he's talking to alfred when alfred's in the hospital i think that's really where it comes out right let me add this i thought andy circus was excellent as yes, alfred I've, definitely. I've read some i've read some reviews that were not that happy they thought he was good but they thought he was too young you know there's always this this been presented this this huge age gap between bruce and alfred but i thought in 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 the fact that bruce is supposed to be in his early 20s here Having Alfred in his fifties, like thirty or thirty years old, him was fine. Yeah, you know, I, I didn't even blink at that. I thought Andy Circus was fine. I, yeah, absolutely. do I think he was as good as Michael Go? No, right. <laughs> yeah, but but it, it, it's he wasn't bad. I I, I hate to say this because he's an incredible actor, and I still think he did a good job. But as it stands right now, 
Jeremy Irons might be the weakest alpha we've ever right. seen. Yeah, yeah, I, I could see that. He was still good, but it's just like when yeah. you put in the the how many of them were were comic accurate. Yeah, I thought Jeffrey Wright was uh, was excellent as Gordon. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't expect any less. I I did not care that they race swapped him. Mm-hmm. I don't think Gordon's ethnic background really matters right. as long as he is a forthright cop who's honest and not corrupt and. He is a, a basis for the grounding of, of Batman. That's all you need in, in Gordon. That's right. all that matters. And I thought he did that well. Because yeah. he, he's presented, and, and quite believably, as the only ally that Batman has in the Gotham City Police Department. Yes. I have an alignment poster that I have. I have many of them on the Geekville Radio Facebook. But I think Gordon is a perfect example of the lawful neutral. He is a good yes. man, but in the end, he knows what justice is and what's legal and all. So he he is right. one of the. He's another reason why Batman doesn't doesn't kill. Batman doesn't do it anyway. But but Gordon right. wouldn't let him because he right. knows. Even Gordon knows if we start killing the bad guys, we're no better than they are. Right. Exactly. I thought Zoe Kravitz was excellent as Catwoman as Selina mm-hmm. Kyle. Yes. I think she was one of the highlights of the movie personally. Yeah, and I didn't even mind the the kind of bisexual hints that they had at the character because well that's true of the comics for the last yeah, yeah. 10 15 years cuz cuz catwoman Selena Kyle just she's that gray area character where it wouldn't be surprising at all if she had uh, to keep it PG friendly experimented in those ways so to speak i hope i'm yeah, like I said, saying it right no you're not you are and 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 like i said in the comics she's been presented as bisexual for about 15 years now so mm-hmm. they're actually being accurate to the comics I, I'm sure it was a lot of it was her stunt double, but I thought she was very believable in the fight scenes. Mm-hmm. I liked the fact that they emphasized in her fight scenes her her speed and her agility. But when it got down to like brass tacks, Batman was able to overpower her, which was a nice little bit of realism we don't get a lot in movies nowadays. As much as I love Black Widow, the fact she's beating up 300 pound dudes and aliens is kind of unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, I can a straight see up that. fist fight. And really, with Catwoman, the way I've always looked at her as a character and it obviously can change depending on who's writing is that fighting her way out might not be her first thought she's going to try mm-hmm. to you know Outthink. slink yeah and, and slink i guess is probably the best way i can put it yes, you know, that's a good word for it slink her good way verb. out yeah <laughs> <laughs> and i thought then then i thought the duality of the role when she was selena and being a bit of a sex pot i thought she was very believable in that too she yeah. was she's obviously a very attractive woman with a, mm-hmm. with, a, with, a, with a with a fantastic figure and so her ability to slink to use your verb <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in and out of, of of with these with these with men in that setting in the night the iceberg lounge she's totally believable in it she's the kind yeah. of woman the way she walks and carries herself and what she's dressing you totally believe that no guy's going to pay her any attention except for you know googly eyes that is an that has inherently been always been a trait of, of catwoman Going back to her early days in the 40s, her beauty is a tool and a right. weapon that she uses. Right. You know? Exactly. It goes back to that uh, experimenting that I was mentioning right. earlier. But but as far as performances, I I, I figured it was going to happen anyway because I've been a fan of this actor for years. But we, we were talking about how Pattinson impressed and everybody else met up, met up to our expectations. Mm-hmm. I thought John Turturro was a little scene-stealing as Carmen Falcone because... I think he's a bit underrated as far as a character actor. Now, granted, my favorite movie of his is probably still Brain Donor just because of just how ridiculously hilarious that movie is and just like my perfect type of humor. But, but he can do drama. He was very good in this. 
Uh, my favorite of his is probably Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? But that's a kind of an ensemble piece that's led by Clooney. And he's a great foil for the Clooney character. But I think for a lot of people, he's going to be Jesus from Big Lebowski. That's always going to be what Turturro's done. And he plays a, a, an utterly believable sleazeball that would work, play, hang out at a, at a bowling alley there. And, and the character he's in in, in Brain Donors is, is a bit of a schemer as well. Because he's like trying to hire right. people and they're like, oh, you got a dental plan? And his counter is, lose one tooth, get two free. Yeah, I know. Which makes and no then sense, he's like, but so, that's what makes it funny. So over, <laughs> well, yeah, was he's like so over the top of the Transformer franchise. So, I mean, he is very versatile. And, and I, it, it was, well, Totoro, he's Italian. He mm-hmm. played an Italian mobster quite well. Right. And, and so I thought he was a scene stealer. He tends to play bad guys more than good guys, or at least morally questionable characters. So to play a, to play a, a mob boss, I don't think it was much of a stretch for him or, or outside of his wheelhouse. And I thought right. he was very good. I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention how like completely unrecognizable Colin Farrell was as right. as Cobblepot. I had heard stories that he would come on the set and other actors who knew Colin in real life for a long time didn't know it was him. I wonder with all the prosthetics they put in, they wore him wear a fat suit and all the makeup, and he completely changed his voice to sound like a northeastern uh, mob guy. Why? I mean, it's not that Colin Farrell's a bad actor. Was it something that he sought after because he wanted the the challenge or he wanted to be tied to the, to a successful franchise? But it was like it's it, like this is not a knock on on Colin Farrell at all. Mm-hmm. I just wonder why they cast him. What what did he bring to the role? You know, yeah, except yeah. a name value, right? And that's that thing is is it really a name value if you can't recognize the guy? I can't right. help but think, and this could just be purely coincidental. I couldn't help but draw the parallels with Danny DeVito in Batman Returns because he was fan-freaking-tastic in that movie. You don't recognize him, but right. once you get down to it and, and just kind of how the Penguin looks, I think that's maybe the way they were going. Obviously, I have issues with how the Penguin was depicted in Batman Returns because in the comics, it's much more like how it is in this movie. He's a crime lord. He's not this grotesque guy raised by penguins. Right, and it... it, it. That's the Tim Burton fantastical side of things. I think the other thing, too, that, that brings up another issue, small issue I had. And, and, and I fully understand that anytime you do a comic book movie, you're not going to be completely faithful to the source material. When they're giving the backstory of Gotham and its longtime important families, yes, the Arkhams and the, and the Waynes are both old school money in, in, in Gotham that have been there for a very, very long time. But so are the Cobblepots, and that's never mentioned once. In fact, I don't even think we hear him called Cobblepot. They call him Oz, you know, short for Oswald, when they don't call him the Penguin. So maybe in the sequel we, we delve into that, you know, because with, with Carmine Falcone being killed, they set up for, for Cobblepot to take over his criminal enterprise. I mean, he already was a gun runner and a drug runner. Well, there is, I, be- I believe it's been announced that Penguin's going to get uh, an HBO Max miniseries. So, with, uh, what's his face from Gotham? Uh, with Colin Farrell. Oh, with Colin Farrell. The one I'm thinking of, what was that? Uh, Philip oh, Taylor Lloyd? Is that his, yeah, whatever his name is? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. From, from Gotham. Which we've talked about before. There are moments in that particular television show, what could be called the Penguin Show, because he yep. stole the show. You know, he really did. Of all the on-screen depictions of Penguin, that's probably my favorite. That hit really hit where he was a rich kid whose family did not have the power it used to. And he was picked on, and that led him down the path that he went down as an adult. Maybe this this HBO Max show will give us some of that backstory. I don't know. Right, right. It could be. 
But one last thing I want to bring up before we wrap up. Mm-hmm. I, I know it's a lot of a lot of our listeners probably want they haven't seen it yet. Want to know Batmobile? What is your what oh, were your thoughts? On the- I loved the Batmobile as soon as I saw it. Now, granted, even after all these years, I'm still a bit of a car guy, so mm-hmm. I knew it looked like a Mopar, like a, a Charger or a Challenger or something like that. Which yeah, if it is yeah, a Charger yeah. underneath, kind of goes back to a weird general General Lee analogy. But yeah, mm-hmm. I I loved the way it looked because it looked like a car that could have been made in a cave by somebody who just wants this super fast car and doesn't and but still is kind of within practicality of his means if that makes any sense all due respect to nolan and he gave a good excuse as to why the tumbler looked the way it did it was like wayne tech r&d and all that but going with this continuing idea that this is batman's second year in crime fighting i buy that car more than i bought the tumbler even with the very solid explanation that Nolan gives. It just, like you said, it looks like the kind of car a guy who wants to make a super fast car would make in his garage or in his in a cave. Yeah, because as much as I like the 60s Batmobile, that was still an experimental line of car. It was actually a Lincoln, which I always thought was funny, Batman driving a Lincoln in the 60s. But <laughs> I never truly got into the really crazy looks of the Batmobile, like the the, the mm. Keaton Batmobile or some of the stuff you'd see in the, the Arkham right. games and such, or where it's like right. glowing and has got these big, long, weirdly looking fins and such. I want something that looks like somebody would actually build and drive. Right. Well, I said this was the last thing, but it was one more thing I wanted to bring up. Mm-hmm. And it's my last thumbs up kind of stamp of approval of this movie. Two things. One, Alluded to, but we never saw the death of Batman's parents. Thank God. We've yeah, seen we that on to. film. We know the times. story. Yeah. <laughs> we we all know it. It's taken as, as just common knowledge entering this movie. It is alluded to. It is important to the motivation of Batman, but that's all we need. We don't need to freaking see it again and again and again. Mm-hmm. First thing. Second thing. It is never stated once in this, I don't kill. I don't kill. He never says, I have a no-kill policy. I have a no-gun policy, right? They don't go into depth like they do in in Batman Begins and Nolan. But yet, we still know this to be the case in the final fight scene when he has very similar tactics to to the Bale Batman in the fight scene at the end of Dark Knight, where instead of killing all these Riddler henchmen, he ties them up and then leaves them hanging so he doesn't kill them. And so they established that, yes, he doesn't kill, but it's never explicitly stated. And I appreciated that because I think the no kill, no gun policy for Batman is probably second only to the death of his parents and just general knowledge of even non-comic book fans. We don't need to hear it or see it again. You agree? Right. right. It, it is so much a part of who he is that you don't need to keep going back to it. That is what you, kind of what you're saying, right? Right, right. We see it there. We know it. We're If we have forgotten, we're reminded of, oh, he's not killing these guys. He's He's hanging them up for the cops to arrest later. But overall, I, I would give it probably an A minus. That's exactly um, what I was thinking. Yeah, there were some flaws in it, uh, mostly Pattinson's hair. I can't get I can't get that out of my mind. But other than that, I, I thought it was if you're going to try to make a Batman Year One, Batman Year Two based movie with a young Bruce Wayne kind of getting his feet under him as a crime fighter and a vigilante in his very tenuous relationship with with the Gotham City Police Department. I thought this did a fine job. Yep, definitely. And I I think we are getting a sequel. I because done very well. Obviously, we got the setup for Joker and other future 
the villains right. as well. So I, I think this is going to be another franchise for the next uh, several years. Whether we see him rub shoulders with the rest of the DC characters, I guess, remains to be seen. But mm-hmm. uh, I, even if it just stays as its own little corner, kind of its own little Elseworlds or Earth mm-hmm. 2 or whatever they're they're doing here, I think it'll be fine like that as well. Well, I think with the DCEU, it's all kind of up in the air because just like we know with Doctor Strange and the multiverse of madness, we're being introduced into this idea of a multiverse in the MCU, which gives them a lot of loopholes that they could take advantage of. We know that the Flash movie with Ezra Miller is going to be Flashpoint. Right. So that now gives DC a lot of loopholes they can play with, too. Definitely. Yeah. All right. That is going to wrap up this edition of Geekville Radio. We went a little long talking the Batman, but it's a long movie, so there's a lot to talk about with it. That, uh, this- that, 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 you, I'm glad you said that. I, I almost forgot. If there is one critique other than, than Pattinson's hair, it is the length. It could have been about, what, 30, 40 minutes less? And yeah. it would have told us that they could have told the same story. Yeah, they, they could have covered like the first half hour or so in probably five to ten minutes uh, with, with a little editing and directing, quite frankly. I give it a pass only because I was so happy to see Batman be a detective in this. I think that was part of the reason of the, of the, of the long running time was to show of the, the full amount of his detective skills. Investigations are very boring. I mean... Think about it. There's a hit TV show called The First 48. It actually covers 48 hours of real time, and they compact it into one hour. So exactly. what does that tell you about investigations? You can right. take all the all the interesting parts of a 48-hour investigation and compact it into an hour television show. They yeah. chose not to go that route here. They chose to actually show the minutia. Right. So if this is your first time hearing us, definitely welcome. Let us know what you think. We can be found on all the major podcatchers. You can find us on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, uh, Stitcher, you name it. Just do a search for Geekville Radio. We have a bunch of other shows, including the Nostalgia Trip, where Trey and I talk old pop culture. We got the Lustone Geek Hall of Fame. We got Examine the Doctor with Mark Short, where we talk Doctor Who. And uh, uh, trained. if anybody wants to get a hold of you and talk about Batman or wrestling or comics or your other show, Examine the Dead, that we have on Geekville Radio, uh, where can they find you? I'm always available on Twitter at crazytrain underscore JB. That is my handle across uh, every social media platform that I have an account on. So if you just do a search for crazytrain underscore JB, you most likely will find Geekville Radio. Let's wrap up this edition of Geekville Radio. Thank you folks for listening, and we will be back next time. expressed by the hosts and or guests are purely their own and do not represent the views of geekvilleradio.com, a1-wrestling.com, or any affiliates. Some media used on Geekville Radio is the respective copyright of its publishers, all rights reserved. Now, John Snyder, who talked about him, makes me wonder. Okay, so he plays Bo Duke of the Dukes of Hazzard. Then he plays Jonathan Kent in Smallville. Do do anything but white beat babyface roles? You know, you got a point.